You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Larry Ravine. Thanks, Mike, for including me in this discussion. This week, we are looking at Sergei Parajanov's The Color of Pomegranates. Released in 1968, the film is something of a look at the life of Armenian singer Syat Nova, told in a very oblique and beautiful way. I'll be honest, this is another one of those films where I feel completely outclassed by the material. This is like when we covered on the Silver Globe or the Holy Mountain, but I'm going to try to do my best and lead this discussion of this film, which, while only 70 minutes long, is a testimony to the endless power of cinema. So, Larry, I'm curious, when was the first time you saw The Color of Pomegranates, and what did you think? I was familiar with um, Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. I saw it actually when it was first released in New York at the Elgin Theater. It impressed me so much in a, in a, a special kind of way that it was it was almost embedded in my memory. The color there's kind of a greenish color, those horns and and the um, mist, a lot of mist in that film. So it was you know it was very atmospheric. And uh, I uh, have a friend who had bought the Kino box set, uh, and I asked if I could, you know, borrow it to look at that. And then the other, the other, uh, the, the color of pomegranates was uh, included along with the um, Legend of the Cerami Fortress. I, I was very comfortable with it and found it very uh, interesting from the standpoint that. I I understand um, poetic films sometimes better than than prose. It appealed to my sensibility that way, and and also was where I originally started making films. The, that type of imagery, and not so much reliant on the words. You know the difference between an instrumental and a tune that's got words in a song. So. Um, I felt very comfortable watching it and intrigued, purely intrigued. Uh, uh, the imagery, I had no idea where it was going, what was, was coming from, but the imagery itself was uh, so outstanding that it, it, it really made me want to find out more about the filmmaker. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head when you call this a poetic film. For folks who haven't seen The Color of Pomegranates, this is not a typical narrative film. There's not necessarily, I mean, there are acts to it, but I wouldn't say there's act one, we're introduced to the character, we 
get uh, his life. We are introduced to a struggle. Act two is the fight against the struggle. Act three is the resolution of the struggle. This is very much a biopic in a way, but it is told in this, as you said, poetic way where there are a lot of moving tableaus, let's say. Uh, We have a lot of the artifice of cinema being presented to us And it just kind of enforces how striking this is and how we need to be more active viewers to try to engage with this work. We can't just sit back. I mean, you can sit back and let this movie wash over you. That's absolutely fine. But if you're looking for a thread to it, you have to be a little bit more active. Yes, I think you do have to work a little bit to keep up with where it's going. Um, It is so dense in terms of the complicated imagery and uh, references to different things. I had no idea that it was based on Sayed Nova when I saw it. I'm more of the type that looks at a film, and I don't necessarily have to read a review about it before I watch it, whatever. I like to form my own opinion. And I saw just in the imagery itself certain universal, a certain universal language that was transcended the language barriers. And um, I like that very much, the, the idea that you can speak to people through imagery. It's like in the um, ancient world, the, the common language was Latin, uh, and everybody, all of the emperors could speak Latin, so they all could talk with each other. And I feel like that the imagery is the same way, just like music and music, that... You can listen to a, a, a song uh, and not know the lyrics, not know the language, but you can still appreciate it. And that's the way I felt about this film. Yeah, the very first time I watched this, I knew that I wasn't getting it, but I also knew that I wanted to get it. I wasn't picking up that there were three different actors playing one character. Like we typically will get an actor who plays the young version of a character and then an actor that plays the older version of the character. In this, we actually get uh, a middle life period actor and that's actually a woman. So we have a man, a boy at the beginning, a woman in the middle, and then a man at the end. And the woman in the middle is in, in drag. uh, So she looks kind of like a man. And then she's also playing the character, Sayanova, who was a real person, playing his love interest. So that was initially very confusing to me to see that, but now I completely understand why that was being done, and it plays very well into the film. Now I see that moment when the young boy comes behind the middle Sayatnova and kind of disappears and becomes now the young man Sayatnova, and the way that we have his face kind of mirror the face of the person that he falls in love with. Yeah, Sofiko Chiari, uh, well, we'll just call her Sofika. Um, she actually played five parts in the film. I didn't realize when I first saw it, I didn't realize that it was the same person who was the mysterious woman uh, looking through the, the um uh, lace and and uh, immediately after a shot after would be uh, a male and it 
wasn't until I went back and studied it a little more that I realized what was going on there. But um, I, I don't know how much of that had to do with with the um, homosexuality and by you know character of sexual inclinations. I kind of felt like that was a personal aspect of of the film that he was imparting a certain a tribute to Dionysus in the bisexuality of the film, and that was what, what got him in trouble, I think, originally with the um, with the Russian powers, that the, the uh, bureaucracy that oversaw the, the uh, film business in, in Russia. I, I found it very interesting that the, you know, that one, the, she, she plays five parts in the, in the film. The history of the Sayanova life uh, is broken down, and once you know that's what it is, uh, it becomes very clear where the images are going. I saw that when once I had studied a little bit about Sergei Perzhenov. It's interesting the way that he makes this a biopic. And I'm saying biopic, which is very much a misnomer. It is really not a biopic. It's not that typical thing that you're going to see where, why is this person the way that they are? How how did they invite the, invent the light bulb anyway? This is a, a portrait, let's say, of Syed Nova, this well-renowned poet, troubadour, a, a shrug, I think is the proper term, from Armenia, Georgia, Russia, the, the Caucasus, and the way that the filmmaker himself, uh, Sergei Parajanov, injects himself into the story and kind of makes this a movie about him at the same time, which is what you're saying, as far as like his sexual proclivities, making those a topic within this, and kind of obfuscated as well. And there are things that we see even in some of Parajanov's earlier films. You'll hear uh, Daniel Byrd and James Stephan later on talk about how there were things in... Uh, a short film, well, a film that was supposed to be long but ended up being a short, Kiev Frescoes, where we see a lot of similar imagery. We see the lace. We get a lot of lace in this film. We see a lot of this lyrical filmmaking that we see in Color of Pomegranates. It's kind of this nice precursor to Color of Pomegranates, where he's kind of working on some of these things that we're going to see. So it's his imagery and his, uh, for lack of a better term, obsessions coming through this story of Syed Nova. And yeah, that's ultimately what might have gotten him into a little bit of hot water with the Russian powers that be. And also that this is this very, very lyrical film that some of the powers that be didn't necessarily understand. So then they tried to mash it out and make it a little bit more palatable. There's that disclaimer at the beginning of the um, the copy that I have. Um, I was looking at the Armenian uh, version, and of course, there's the Russian version. But it's it's a, it says this is based on Sayanova's uh, life, but it's not a, a adaptation of in a literal sense. Um, and he plays he plays a great part in it, and I think he let himself become Syed Nova himself and gave Syed Nova some of his own qualities in doing that. But it's 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 unbelievable to me that somebody in the periods nineteen sixty eight when he made this film that he could have such a beautiful film living under the Russian regimes 
that were so strict and so complicated that you couldn't do certain things. And he seemed to get away with a lot of stuff. Of course, he paid the price because after Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, he he did five years for being a, uh, put him in, in prison for some gulag because he was classified as a surrealist as opposed to the so- social uh, realism that was the the standard approach uh, for filmmaking. And I think that it, it's interesting that he, since he was born in Armenia, he didn't really live there that much. And I understand when he went to shoot The Color of Pomegranates that he, there was a lot of stuff he didn't know about the Armenians. He was raised mainly in Georgia went to Russia to study the film and dance and singing. He had really had a, a broad background and then wound up uh, being sent to Kiev to uh, do a Ukrainian film. So uh, uh, his, his wealth of information and influences make it very interesting to look at the film and say, what are the universal images and what are his own special subjective images that he that he put in there's some discussion about the llama that he put a llama which is not indicative of uh, Armenia at all and uh, I believe um, James Stephan said that you know it was might have been a situation where he he was uh, just to see what he how far he could push his uh, ability to get what he needed for for the film. Yeah, because we're talking about that level of Site Nova. We're talking about the level of Sergei Parajanov himself. And then we're also talking, and I bring this up a little bit in the interviews, uh, and then it's interesting to hear the commentary as well, talking a little bit about the history of Armenia itself. And specifically, what interests me about Armenia is just the horrible ordeal that they've gone through over the years, and especially the Armenian genocide. And it was very interesting for me to find out, listening to the commentary on the Second Sight disc, that the actor that played his father was actually a survivor of the Armenian genocide, and that he still had PTSD from the experience. And just to know that and to look into his eyes, you really got a new appreciation of the the depth of that guy. And then also seeing the color of pomegranate. When I would I would talk about the color of pomegranates to friends, they would say it's red, and it's like, yeah, I get it, ha ha. But that's also the color of the Armenian flag. So it's interesting the way that that plays into, you know, we have yet another layer of this. And then, yes, my God, talk about symbology, the symbols in this film and the way that we have our own language of symbols is just fantastic. The, the shell, the water, the golden ball, and the way that they come in and play against one, one another is fantastic. Yes, some of the imagery, especially like the hunt, the king's hunt, with the horses uh, prancing and and the balls being tossed in the air by the children, there's so much going on that it becomes a real jumbo of imagery that you can pick out any section of the frame and see something going on. Now that I mentioned the frame, I, I found as a filmmaker, it was very interesting that he used the static camera straight on in most cases to the subject. And it's the concept that, uh, an older concept, John John Ford, 
said the camera doesn't move, uh, the actors move, or the action moves within the frame. And I can see that he's he's done that and continued to do it with his, his subsequent films to have that static frame as opposed to uh, Shadows, which was more of the vacuum cleaner type cinematography that moves around a lot. It's subjective. It can be bumpy and stuff. But I think that he came to the realization that it's like, uh, in the theater, or you know, if you're an actor, the first thing they tell you uh, on a set is to don't look in the camera because it breaks the illusion of that fourth ball. And I think that Tarantinov um, sensed that he would be less of an influence as you wouldn't be seeing the director. You, these images become totally universal in a sense that you're not aware of the fact that the, that somebody has thought to put them there, that they they seem like a mystical concoctory of, of, of images that just um, meld together. And like I said, I didn't necessarily feel like I had to know what the uh, story was or, or anything. I just, I did like want to know more about him uh, and know more about what the story was after seeing the film, which I think is a great thing about a film to want to research it and find out more about it, be able to enjoy it when you first see it, and then go back and look at it for uh, the imagery with the different aspects of what motivated him to use those. And a lot of the imagery is, is self-explanatory. The more, the situation in the chapel when the the older uh, Sayanova is digging the hole in the in the chapel floor and the sheep come in. I mean that's that's probably the the most apparent imagery that he uses is is people as sheep. And I don't think he was a religious man, but I think he probably was a very spiritual person. And he transcended the the uh, Eastern Orthodox religious stuff, it's all there, the imagery and stuff, but it, it has a bent that, that's purely his own, and almost like, it's more like rituals in a theatrical setting. I don't think that there is a right way or wrong way to interpret this film. There are so many different ways that you can come at it. And on the uh, Second Sight DVD, there's a, or sorry, Blu-ray, there's a, a short film, 30 minutes long, by uh, Leon Grigorian. Sorry, I'm going to be butchering names all throughout this. And called Memories of About Nova. And he goes through and explains the story of the film, cuts it down to 30 minutes, and narrates his, I don't know if it's his interpretation or the true interpretation, but it's interesting too, because when you see it in that form, in this 30 minute form, he actually uses some outtakes in there. So now I, this is a movie where I actually have overwatched this film. Like the weekend that we were originally supposed to record this, I watched every thing on this Blu-ray, listened to the commentary, read all the articles, did all this kind of stuff. And now when I watch this stuff, I don't know what I've seen and what I'm remembering and what I've seen in this version versus that version. Because as you said, there are multiple versions of this. Yeah, it's interesting that, that the Russian version, that uh, that disclaimer that is at the beginning of the film, 
evidently the bureaucrats in, in Russia said nobody's going to understand it, and, and that's why they didn't call it um, uh, Zayat Nova in, in the beginning, uh, that they changed it to the color of pomegranates, which uh, uh, the color of pomegranates is also the color of blood, and the pomegranate itself is believed by some that that is the apple from that uh, Eve was tempted with, and in the Middle East, you, it, they're everywhere. So it's very, a very common uh, imagery for the for the Middle Eastern people, or you know the Orientals. Uh, they're everywhere. The, the uh, pomegranates is very common. I think that that had a lot to do with the Russians, like saying, "Well, you know, we will we'll take Satnova out of the equation." Um, I understand that the Russian version was manipulated around in a number of ways and recut, re-edited in a way that they thought would make more sense to the common people. I believe uh, James uh, Stephan comments that it was really the lower-class people that identified with the film. It wasn't at all the middle-class, the bourgeois. It's one of those situations where people are underestimate their audience and trying to protect them and give them some handle to work with. So the two different versions, those two different versions, and the short 30-minute version that you spoke of, see, it almost seems like it could be cut up. There's, there's not really a beginning, not really an end to the film, and it, it's modular. Uh, if you're following the story, it makes sense the way it is, but you could also take it and put the beginning at the end and look at it that way w- without um, having the storyline uh, intact. Yeah, it was interesting. I ran across, uh, I actually ran across a couple different fan edits, quote unquote, of this film, one of which was a version where the, I don't know if it was official or not, but it's someone possibly Juno Reactor themselves put the music of Juno Reactor over part over the entire movie of the color pomegranates. And normally I don't go for that kind of thing. Normally it's like, I, I really don't think that Pink Floyd was in the studio with uh, with just the first however many minutes of The Wizard of Oz and syncing things up to it. I think, you know, whatever. It's, the, all that kind of stuff is a lot of horseshit to me. Um, but I have seen bands redo scores for movies, and especially when they do it live, it is really amazing. And the way that whoever it was put the these songs from Juno Reactor over the color of pomegranates and then even faded in some of the original sound effects and what little dialogue there is, they would bring that in occasionally. It actually really worked for me. I was very impressed to see how they married those things together. I think it was brilliant. The composition that they made of that, I I literally got made the hair on the back of my neck stand up at certain places. It was so powerful and it would be interesting to know what uh, Parajanov would have thought of that, because in an interview he says that the music was important because it made it more modern, made the film more modern. He might even like that music track. I found it very, very interesting and pleasing myself. 
And that's one of the things about the original film or the film that ended up coming out, both the Armenian and the Russian versions. The way that he uses sound is so interesting because not only is he challenging us with the visuals, but then he's also playing so much with the sound. The way that those kids' voices would come up and chant the same thing and then fade out and then come back up again. There were times where I was just like, I'm not exactly sure what's going on with this, but I'm enjoying what he's doing. Like the way that we're kind of asynchronous at the beginning when there's a flood and um, all these books are saturated with water and the way that we hear the water before we actually see things pushing down on the books to, to push all the water out. And then we go from that to that great sound of, again, water hitting this these metal containers where they're throwing this yarn or, or material that has been dyed. And the way to hear the sound on that metal and then the thump of the material actually on that, that's completely synchronous. But it's really nice that he will play with that throughout the film. And sometimes, they've, without explanation, the soundtrack stops. Uh, you know, and I'm wondering if the concept there was to all of a sudden change your uh, focus to the to the imagery alone. And uh, in all of his stuff, there's um, you, because he was an artist, a graphic artist, and the the film is very much like his collages that he made while he was in the, the gulag. He tried everything he could to make something new and exciting and and visual. Um, that that um, the music itself is is or uh, the soundtrack for the for the Armenian. Uh, I, I haven't I haven't seen the Russian, but I imagine it's they just used the same soundtrack, but they cut it up and moved it around a lot. But the original was that was that was very innovative and new at the time in uh, 1968 because there was, as we know 68 was a very important year for things changing all all the way around you know here in the U.S. and uh, also at evidently in in uh, Armenia with him that certain thing that when the time is right. A lot of stuff changes, and now we would look at it and say, "Well, that's you know, it's it's like looking at the Mona Lisa. If you look at it, and you say, well, that's a nice painting.' But if you don't know that the atmospheric background, the um, aerial perspective was a brand new thing. There were certain things in the painting that were uh, secretive, and you could explore. Um, I think that uh, Perichinov had a lot of little inside jokes and, and, and secret things that he put imagery. The thing that I found most reassuring in, in terms of like continuity were the always with the oriental carpets uh, and uh, so much of that, so many carpets and you know, the loom and the, like you said, the, the wool um, being, being dyed and there was the lace, the woman um, knitting the lace, and there was a lot of that, a lot of that, um, which made it very, very organic for me in a way. But at the same time, there were visual tricks, and when the priest goes against the wall in his black robe, and then it shifts to 
a white robe. That was like a brilliant manipulation of, of the imagery there. And it was very simple, a very simple thing. This is long before computer-generated imagery. This was back when he was using the most basic, authentic images that were very natural, very organic. I found that all of that put together made it just so fascinating that I did want to, once I saw it uh, the first time, I wanted to go back and see it again, and I did. I, I, without even looking to find out more about him, I just wanted to see it again to see if I could catch some of this stuff in there because there was, there was uh, you know, as a, as a cameraman, for instance, that static frame, straight-on static frame, uh, which was reminiscent of the Persian miniatures, and he even shows that at the beginning. He shows some some Armenian um, religious pages when he's talking about the books and, and how important books are. That that's that's what the legacy becomes. That he uses that format in a way that is very unobtrusive. And it, the one the one thing that I would like to know, uh, which there's there hasn't been too much discussion of, is that there's one shot where the camera moves, and and that is at one hour and eleven minutes, and it's simply a a, a stone carved face on a wall, and the camera tilts down to uh, the stone wall, and that's the only that's the only time in the whole film. That the camera moves, and it must it must stand for something. It must be it must be uh, you know some point that he was making there. But I can't I can't figure out what that what that would be. You know, there it just moves on that because it seems like such an obtuse uh, imagery. But there's so much of that, you know, and it, uh, the the concept of all the ladders and the water and uh, the the woman's uh, when the when the young boy is side uh, Nova is, is the young looking into the bath uh, bathhouse and he sees uh, the woman's chest with the uh, mother of pearl conch shell. There's there's like it looks like milk almost running across that. So there's so many imagery and levels of, of, of the imagery that you can almost apply anything that you are comfortable with to say, you know, when I saw the conch shell, I thought, well, this is, this is obviously a, a Fibonacci imagery of the spiral. And he put that in place of the, the one breast, the right breast, uh, he leaves the left breast open, which is the one over the heart. And later on in the in the film, we see that imagery again. Next time, it's with the man, so it's back to that uh, Dionysus imagery of of uh, man and woman all in the same in the same framework, uh, and not separated so much because uh, he he comes back. Back to that many times that that imagery of the uh, man and woman and the woman and the man and uh, I, th I think that uh, there's a lot of very subjective things that he put in but also the universal things make it interesting for everyone to see 
Speaking of the use of the camera, the one thing that really gets me is when he does a triptych with the camera and will have one, the, the camera is locked down, looking straight ahead at three different things going on at the same time. And it's almost like we're seeing three different stages. And I'm thinking specifically of, I think it's a sheep that is being butchered. And the way we have the sheep being butchered three different times on the screen. And if you look at each one of them, it's almost like the different stages of it. So it's really a neat way to present this idea and to use the camera as if we were an observer in a gallery. And again, it's all moving. None of this stuff is necessarily static. So it's not like we're looking at a painting or a series of paintings. This is all life on film. It's like a, not necessarily a still life on film. And I will say also with when it comes to the sheep being butchered, that if you are squeamish about animals being killed, that this is not necessarily a movie for you. Now, this isn't like a Mondo film where they're killing animals to be gross. There are reasons for this stuff happening. And I am sure, not that it matters to a lot of people, but I'm also sure that they weren't just being killed to be killed, that they would also you know, probably be butchered and eaten later on. That might turn you off as well. But I just wanted to say that this isn't um, overt animal cruelty, but there is some of that in the film. And then the woman says that it's put to seven different, that the, the animal goes to seven different places. And I don't know what the significance of that is, unless it's the seven days of the week. That was from the poetry uh, of, of Sayanova. The poetry runs through, and I see that he lifts um, imagery from the the poetry. One of the things, I mean, there's there's wind, and there's lots of liquid water, and and other uh, liquid that the pomegranate juice, of course, at the end when it's when it uh, it, it signifies uh, Sayanova's death. Uh, when it, it's poured on, on him, he doesn't eat fire in, in that. The only fire in the film, is, there's the scene in the uh, mortuary where the, the brilliant uh, effect uh, when, when she's holding up the black, it's like parchment or something, and all of a sudden the wind uh, stirs up all of this ash in the air. And it's floating around. Uh, I found that that extremely powerful, uh, but uh, it, it just like he didn't show the slaughter of the sheep, he doesn't show uh, the fi- a fire and and anything other than than a candle. So I'm curious just why he eliminated that aspect. If he's got the earth, I mean, there's plenty of earth. If, if if you stand back from the film after you've seen it, you think of it. It's it's primarily earth color the brown and I don't know how much of that is due to the the vinegar syndrome of, of the I mean the reds are the first thing to go at when they start deteriorating and of course this uh, new Blu-ray has been redone and they can bring that now so it would be interesting to see what the um, colors would be now but I, I'm seeing it as, as earth color there's wind in several places um, and then there's the liquids, the water, and um, 
but no fire, no fire. Yeah, if I had to guess when it comes to the significance of seven, I would think it would be the seven sacraments of the Catholic Church, you know, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, marriage, and holy orders. And we get some of that in this film. Like, speaking of the, the animal use, we have the the chicken and the way that they're taking the dye from those vats I was talking about and rubbing it over the chicken, and it almost becomes like blood, though it's not. And then they are anointing um, the, the father's trying to put a cross on the son's head in the way that he, I think he either rubs it off or turns away. So it's interesting the way that we have that, too. Yes, the father makes a, a symbol on the boy's head, and the boy takes his hand and wipes it off and, and smiles afterwards. And towards the end of uh, when we see Side Nova in, in, in the monastery uh, aspect of the, of the film, when he's uh, become a monk, uh, he uses that he uses that symbol again. He takes his hand and rubs it across his forehead, just the way he, the boy did. But I, that's interesting. That the seven sacraments, I hadn't thought of that. But the seven days, seven sacraments. You know that. I guess seven is a um, significant number. Um, but they said they gave it gave the um, cooked lamb to seven different places, to, and um, they even show the lamb being cooked. And um, then there's that funny little scene where the where the husband says to the the wife says that they went to a a, a bath bath in um uh, I believe it was in in um until break uh in, in in georgia and they uh the husband chats her by saying well you don't have to tell everybody about us going to a bath you know and then she says well, well then we got out and we went and we had some barbecue <laughs> <laughs> so uh there are a couple of little things in there that i found very hilarious um the one when the dancer comes out from behind there's uh, four or five Persian rugs or Oriental rugs hanging up, and a dancer comes out and she makes uh, mime movements, and then she takes the mirror that she's looking at herself and she rubs it on her butt to clear the uh, glass and goes on. But that's one of the better, I think, mime sections, uh, and there's certainly a lot of mime in, in the film. And I guess Perjanov, being a dancer himself at one point, was very comfortable with with choreographing those scenes. Uh, I enjoyed some of the humor that he that he had in there. It's not all doom and gloom. All, although the captions under the um, on the version that I have, it's all uh, side note of saying, uh, you know, why has he been forsaken? Why is his life so terrible? Why is it doom and gloom? you know? It's just very glum. I guess you know that when when you think of, of Karajanov's life himself. I mean, the fact that his his first wife, uh, who was a Tartar, was killed by her brother because they just they did they didn't approve of him marrying an Armenian and how just exactly how devastating that must have been. He was in his early twenties and had been married very long, and he winds up in prison. And again, you know, it's like. The amazing thing to me is that somebody can go through all that and still make these beautiful films, just absolutely gorgeous films. 
that sensibility. They can't take that away from him. He was obviously a very bold and, and cantankerous person. I mean, that's what got him in a lot of trouble, that he wasn't afraid to speak up. But how he could go, his life being so... You know, it's the the Russian thing of Stalin saying, you know, you, you, you're born, you suffer, and you die. And that seemed to be the um, communist Russia philosophy was that, you know, there's no room for anything actually living or enjoying or having any of that. But he seemed to have that ingrained in him so much, and maybe it was because of his Armenian or Georgian background that he was able to keep that fresh idea. But it's amazing to me that he could possibly make these beautiful films under the conditions that he was working working with and, and uh, being oppressed by the Russians. Um, just amazing. You mentioned 1968, and people who listen to this podcast are probably sick of me ranting about 1968 and what a significant year it was politically, socially, and especially filmically that we had so many amazing movies coming out in 1968, so many things that were kind of on the pulse of what was happening in the world, 1968, 1969, of course, and I was just talking on another podcast. I was on the Culture Cast, and we were covering the film Arrows Plus Massacre by Yushingi from 1969. And I had the exact same response to Color Pomegranates as I had to that, which sounds like a very similar response that you had as well. I wanted to immediately watch that film over and over and over again. And I had the same response when it came to Color Pomegranates because it's just so gorgeous and dense, but you just want it to kind of seep into your bones. Now, Arrows Plus Massacre is over three hours long, but it doesn't necessarily feel like a three-hour long film. Color of Pomegranates doesn't feel like a 73, 79-minute film, whatever it is. It feels longer because it is so dense, but at the same time, it doesn't feel like you're in for a slog. It's just there, and you experience it like art and i keep bringing up you know the static camera and and the way that we're framing these things and it is art and it's just absolutely gorgeous and yeah i've just watched it over and over and over again and each time i seem to find new things and i really appreciate that he was able to do that that stylized movement is that halting very definite movement whenever something somebody moves or puts a hand out or whatever, very seldom does, is there a quick movement unless it's for a reason. When the girl turns her head to see something, it might be a fast movement, but otherwise it's a very um, determined, very slow uh, movement and sets the pace for the film in this very kind of a quiet, stilled way. He's not in a hurry to impart any of the information. He wants to savor that. And you mentioned the fact that it's 72 minutes, and that was in 68. That was that was the minimum international running time that you could have for a feature film. It had to be at least 72 minutes. And that's probably why, you know, to be in the international market, because his uh, Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors had quite an impact internationally, and he was aware of the international possibilities of having his film shown in many different places other than just in Armenia or in Russia, which 
they kind of squelched his ability to show that film. I don't know if they how they got paid for the films. They obviously or probably didn't get any kind of residuals or any money after the film was made, which is another thing that sort of uh, amazes me that he could put everything, I mean, he put so much into the film. Uh, I, I don't know what, after the film was over, did he ever get any more money? Did he, you know, uh, he? they only made five prints of of the, um, of the initial Armenian copies, and, you know, the, the film was, the original schedule for it was only eight days. Uh, I think it went over that, but you know, that's a massive amount of of stuff to do in eight days. I wouldn't think that that would be possible in eight weeks. I mean, it is just so dense. I mean, I'm sure that there are a lot of things that aren't more than one take, but it's just so layered. They talk about that they, uh, before they started shooting the film, that the uh, director of photography um, and I had to test the film stock because there was a lot of bad stock. They probably got short shrift as far as like what they were allotted um, to to work. I, I noticed in one of the um, you know there's that section that has a, uh, there's a online a, a YouTube thing and they show uh, the outtakes from the from the film and I noticed that uh, the cut on on the shot would be right after you know that start that start the shot with a slate quick slate uh, they weren't doing sync sound so it makes it a lot easier to shoot that way and also they showed um, Parajanov uh, directing and he was very much the Eastern European uh, directing uh, where they really where the director kind of outacts the actor. And, and showing him what he wants and how he wants it. Here, here, that's that's considered really not very cool to tell the actors what what you you want to do. But he seemed to do that. And then uh, the cut at the end was like, as soon as the scene was finished, the camera stopped. Uh, there wasn't any, you know, if you if you're shooting forty thousand feet, which you would actually have to shoot that much. To get a seventy-minute film, seventy-two-minute uh, film, you don't let the camera run uh, even two seconds longer because if you have two hundred takes in the film, it adds up. That's the, those, those two seconds or four seconds um, add up to quite a bit of footage. So I think that they were probably rehearsed it uh, enough times, and he obviously. Uh, told everyone in the frame what exactly they were to do because you can see that um, everyone has a has an act to portray and uh, the the people in some of the some of the scenes where uh, when the king is uh, the hunting scene you can see that everybody in the frame had a very specific role to play. Uh, and I think that they probably rehearsed it, rehearsed it, and then shot as little footage as possible. I wouldn't imagine they were they they could shoot like a, a, a more than a, a, an allotted amount of film, you know. Which uh, is another thing that it probably wasn't the same. You know, when you do a feature, you try to get the or used to um, try to get the same emulsion number so that the film would be consistent in 
in terms of when the lab got it, that the processing and the timing and everything was consistent. And uh, I imagine that they got um, they got a lot of things like short ends, which uh, you know be a hundred feet that was broken off of a thousand foot uh, roll, because a uh, hundred feet is only a minute, ninety feet to a minute in thirty five millimeter, and um, they probably got a lot of that a lot of that stuff, you know. So it's amazing that they got any quality out of it at all. So let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a pair of interviews. The first is with film historian Daniel Bird, the director of The World is a Window, The Making of the Color of Pomegranates. And the second is with James Stefan, the author of The Cinema of Sergei Parajanov. And we'll be back with those after these brief messages. I know you know who I'm talking about. It's that guy. Yeah, yeah, with the eyebrows, he's, right? He's in a yeah, million the bushy movies. eyebrows. Sometimes they're bushy, but he also sometimes have a mustache. Yeah, well, but but he shaved. Well, he, no, he didn't. You know who I'm talking about. You see, you've seen this, him in a million movies. We just saw him in that one thing. Yeah, he looks like a pug. Listen to me, Chris Gore, and Anthony Ray Bench on the Film Threat Podcast. You got questions. Sometimes we have the answers. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take us to church. Uh, What can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. (laughs) Uh, Is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that f***ing burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. (laughs) I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, Yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one one star too many. (laughs) Let me tell you. The worst f***ing piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. Uh, I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. Well, Eric, would you say that we're just two dudes who love talking about movies over at the Culture Cast? I mean, yeah. I don't know if dudes is the correct nomenclature, though. (laughs) Dudes, bros. Okay, what about movie nerds? No. Okay. Uh, Dudes is fine. Not nerds. Anything but movie nerds. Well, over here at the Culture Cast, we talk about new movies, overlooked gems, classics, and some films that cause us to question our sanity twice a week. Yeah, Hot to Trot comes to mind for sure. Yeah, Hot to Trot was a real mess. So make sure to check out the Culture Cast on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is Adam Spiegelman from the Cult Movie Podcast, proudly resents. And you listen to my favorite movie podcast, the projection booth. I know. It's messed up, right? What was your first experience with The Color of Pomegranates? Well, I first saw The Color of Pomegranates on television. That must have been sometime in the 1990s. At the time, all the TV listings were still in a magazine, and there were two TV Times and the Radio Times. I read a description for The Legend of Surami Fortress, the film Parajanov made next in the 1980s. And I didn't know who Parajanov was, and I was basing things purely on the descriptions in the magazine, and there was this outline of the legend of Surami Fortress about a, a warrior who you know, sacrifices himself, and he has to be a castle and things like this. And I was at an age when I thought, well, great, this sounds like Krull. So yeah, I 
slammed in that Betamax tape and uh, <laughs> set it for one in the morning or whenever it was playing. Woke up the next day and uh, realized that, no, this, this isn't Crawl. It's uh, something else. And I can't say that I was immediately drawn into um, the aesthetic of Legend of Suram Fortress. It was very disconcerting seeing this film. There's kind of like moving tableaus and uh, title cards and Georgian with, uh, I think actually when he saw it then, it was just Georgian. It didn't have a Russian voiceover. But it's the kind of film that stuck with me. And so I did see The Color of Pomegranates at some point on television. That one intrigued me even more. But I think it really started to take a hold at the end of the 1990s when the Armenian version of the film played at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London. And at around the same time, there was an exhibition of Parajanov's artworks, his sculptures and his collages at Leighton House. Leighton House, you remember the scene in Brazil with the, the kind of Sam Lowry's mother having the plastic surgery done? That's Leighton House. So it was a really kind of suitably Baroque environment to have all of Parajanov's kind of collages and sculptures. That was interesting because he was like... Schrankmeyer or Borovchik, somebody working at the intersection of fine art and film. Yeah, I went to Poland in 2002. I just published a book on Polanski and I was looking for something else to write about. And there was a series, a publisher was doing like individual monographs on significant Soviet films. So I initially pitched Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. But the editorial board came back and said, maybe you should do Color of Pomegranates because that's obviously the defining film of Parajanov's career. The reason I proposed Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors was that I was very close to the Ukraine border and uh, I knew that I would be able to travel to Hutzel Chesna and I knew people who'd done a lot of fieldwork there who were working with the music and things like that. So with The Color of Pomegranates, I thought, well, I don't know anything about that film, really. So during the summer of 2004, I traveled to Armenia with the intention of interviewing uh, surviving cast and crew members and going to the, the Armand Film Studios and then to go to the individual locations where the film had been shot. So... I managed to interview Yuri Sayadian, who was the sound recordist and kind of sound engineer on the film, and Stepan Adranikan, who was the production designer. And I went to the Parajanov Museum, of course, and then to the Sanahin and Hagbat monasteries and uh, managed to speak to a nun who remembered the shooting, uh, <laughs> a groundsman who told a story about... Uh, how when they were kind of breaking the tomb to shoot the scene inside when he's kind of like digging the hole there to ensure that if there, were, if there was a corpse with kind of jewellery or valuables that the crew didn't steal them. And um, so I came back and um, then I found out that the series, the whole series had been cancelled. So I had all this research without a home. and uh, But I was kind of hooked and an opportunity came a few years later to go to Yerevan uh, as part of a theatre festival. I was directing a performance, and when I was there, I met Albert Yavorian, who was Parajanov's cinematographer on Ashik Kariba's last film. So yeah, it was interesting to get his perspective on Parajanov. And then I think about a year later, the British Film Institute contacted me. They wanted to perhaps release Parajanov's films on video, do a retrospective, that sort of thing. And so they asked if I would do a report on the the rights and materials. So, you know, who who owned the films and uh, 
where were the prints and what condition they were in, things like that. Then, yeah, ultimately a Parajanov retrospective happened in, I think, about 2010. It was organized by um, Leila Alexander, who'd worked as Tarkovsky's interpreter on his last film, The Sacrifice. That was particularly interesting in the way that it brought various people together. Yuri Mechitov, a Georgian photographer who took all those iconic pictures of Parajanov. Uh, Roman Balayan, an Armenian filmmaker who worked pretty much exclusively in Ukraine, and he worked as Parajanov's assistant on Kiev Frescoes, a project which got to the script and test stage, but was ultimately stopped before it went into production. And I think at that time, perhaps because of that report, uh, and also because of James Stephan, because it was around this point, I was very, very familiar with James's research in this area, and it became quite clear that James was at the forefront, and uh, in any work on Parajanov, really uh well james was the guy so it seems stupid covering the same track so i kind of focused more on the material aspects of the films themselves you know things like the negatives what happened to them and so when we did this parajanov symposium as part of the retrospective i kind of gave a talk on um the need to ensure the safety and uh restoration of parajanov's films in terms of things like the negatives the prints and you know, because it really became obvious how fragile uh, film materials are at that point. And there was a fire at the film archive in Georgia a few years earlier, and the sound elements to the legend of Surami Fortress had been destroyed. And it's one of those things which you take for granted how, you know, you think that once a film is shot, it's put in an archive and you access those elements when you need it. But because of the Soviet, the breakup of the Soviet Union, uh, there was all the elements were kind of strewn out between, you know, Armenia, Georgia, and Moscow. And economic factors come into play thanks to privatization. And, you know, it complicates the right situation. And it did seem to me at that point that those elements and films were, were quite vulnerable. And, um, you know, that was kind of a point which kind of really was kind of, you know, reinforced a year or so later when I started to work on a DVD produced by Second Sight Films of the Colour of Pomegranates. We we received a master tape from uh, Rossico. I believe it was not only incomplete, but there wasn't that much visual information on the file in terms of, uh, you know, the individual image, the, sorry, the, the image of the film and how much information is stored. So, you know, it was very saturated and uh, very contrasty and not much information. So David McKenzie, the uh, now legendary uh, DVD author, <laughs> uh, set about actually finding a better copy. And we made what was at that point uh, the uh, the definitive DVD version, which uh, was taking an older transfer of the film, color grading it and doing very kind of rudimentary restoration work in terms of duplicating adjacent frames to obscure frames which have been damaged and things like that. And that kind of got me interested in the process of, um, yeah, restoration. We made a documentary called The World is a Window in which basically this was the Russian version of the film and the distributor Second Sight Films were concerned that consumers would be under the impression that they had the wrong version because, of course, there was kind of all this chatter on the forums about an Armenian version and a Russian version. The Armenian version was definitive. And I explained that the Armenian version was closer to Parajanov's intentions. And incidentally, this is based mostly on the uh, 
work of James Stephan. You know, he was writing on this subject as, as early as the late 1990s. Second slide said, well, look, can you, can you say that on camera so that when people buy the, the disc, they'll know that, you know, it's the best available materials? And my response was, well, why not actually hear that from people who worked on the film? So instead, the money that was put aside for me to go down to London and to have an interview film with me, and I'm really not an expert in that area, was spent instead on a plane ticket to Moscow and to Yerevan you know, on a bus to Tbilisi and Kiev on the way back. And I used a kind of uh, very basic camera loaned to me by David McKenzie. And uh, yeah, we, we I filmed as many people as I could who'd worked on the film. And we kind of fashioned that into a documentary which was edited over Skype, which kind of gave a kind of, um, it was, there were an awful lot, as you know, there's like, there's a huge number of documentaries on Parajanov, which is understandable given that he's such a attractive personality. But I was interested in doing a kind of a, a film about the production history of the color of pomegranates. And that's really what that film became. And then a few years after that, um, Bologna, the, the World Cinema Project, part of the Film Foundation, they um, started work on their proper restoration of the Armenian version of the film. And, you know, I, I kind of got in, well, I, think, I can't remember how we got in touch, but it was a case of sharing whatever information I had. And I know that, that, that James was approached too, and uh, I really did very little, but I was very happy to see uh, a credit at the end of that restoration um and it's certainly something to be um just to film i'm very happily to be associated with then a few years later it came round that second sight wanted to put out a blu-ray and so that was really the perfect opportunity to to put together the well what what i set out to be is uh, the definitive version of the film and that brings us up to where we are now well, you mentioned seeing the film on TV and then seeing it again, but this time was the Armenian version, there's the Russian version. What are some of the differences between these versions of the film? I think the main difference is the the sequence of the events and also the soundtrack is different as well. Like in the opening sequence in the monastery, uh, there's some quotations, uh, biblical uh, kind of voiceover, which was removed. Of course, this was during the Soviet period and, and they were sensitive to um, an overt emphasis on a religious atmosphere. And this is something which is um, very much evident in the production memos James unearthed in Argali, the Russian state literature archives in Moscow. There is this concern about kind of not having an overtly religious atmosphere. So those disappeared from the Russian version. Uh, there are a number of scenes which are also cut, not just because of the religious atmosphere, uh, but for timing and structure, I guess, there's a whole, there's some shots of, uh, people cutting grass on the roof of, uh, one, a monastery. Those all disappeared. And a number of scenes were just trimmed. Uh, so, you know, those were the main, I think the, the main issue was in the 1970s, most people first got to see, well, most cinephiles, hardcore kind of art film enthusiasts got to see the color of pomegranates in the 1970s as part of a campaign to release Parajanov from prison. And the assumption was that this Russian version was butchered. But I think if you look at the film, it's not really butchered. It's probably like Yotkevich was a, a book editor and giving shape to material. And uh, so I, I prefer to think of the Yotkevich version and the Armenian version not in terms of one being definitive and the other being a bastardization, but rather 
two different edits of the same material, one which was under Parajanov's control and one which was under Yudkevich's control. Yudkevich, it must be stressed, was a supporter of Parajanov from the outset. I mean, he, he recommended him during the commissioning stages of the film. And also that Parajanov's cut, Parajanov himself wasn't really happy with it uh, in terms of he was finding the film not just during shooting, but also during the post-production and a time limit was imposed. So really that, you know, that he was given a short time frame and when he had to deliver the Armenian version, you know, he himself wasn't entirely satisfied with it. So um, for me, it is important not to um, not to consider Parajanov's Armenian cut as definitive uh, because, yeah, he himself wasn't happy. But at the same time, most people got to see the Yudkevich version. So that version shouldn't be discounted. And it is interesting to see how Yudkevich re-edited the material in turning them into chapters from Sainova's life. It is interesting because when Parajanov went on to make subsequent films like The Legend of the Sorami Fortress and Ashik Karib, he did actually use the very editing technique which Yudkevich had used, which is to kind of announce a fragment of a narrative to say, you know, it's a bit like Barry Lyndon. This is the bit when, you know, something happens. Whereas in Parajanov's Armenian version, there were sections of poetry which are used as a kind of refrain or counterpoint to the action, which is um, not always clear, let's put it like that. What was the relationship between Soviet filmmaking and Armenian filmmaking when this movie was made? And was there even a relationship or was it just a dictation? All of these countries in the Soviet borderlands, you know, it is a balancing act between, on the one hand, encouraging a sense of national identity. These are all people belonging to a union, after all. But at the same time, not ending up at a position of nationalist tendencies. And as you can see, this is something which is a... Uh, uh, very much an issue today, not just in Ukraine or Armenia or Georgia, but the European Union or the United States. It is this balancing act. That, I have to say, is the aspect of Parajanov's work which fascinated me the most in terms of reading about a filmmaker who... Parajanov used to say that he was a ethnic Armenian that grew up in Georgia and uh, was educated in Moscow and that worked in Ukraine that ended up being accused of Ukrainian nationalism. And... After the collapse of the Soviet Union, all of those countries wanted to claim Parajanov as their own. So, you know, if you went to Armenia, the answer was, well, you know, he's ethnically, his parents were, so he's really Armenian. And if you went to, to Georgia, it was the case, well, he grew up in Tbilisi. And besides, you know, he could speak kind of like colloquial Armenian, but he could write in Armenian. And if you went to Ukraine, well, his wife is Ukrainian and he was employed by Dovzhenko's studio. So you know, he's really Ukrainian. And, uh, and if you went to Moscow, well, Parajanov was a Soviet filmmaker, so he's really a Russian filmmaker. So there was this kind of paradox. On the one hand, you know, he'd been persecuted for the perceived nationalistic tendencies within his work in the Soviet times, whereas in the post-Soviet times, he was his work was seen as a kind of a, a repository for national culture, uh, which is ironic in the way that I think a lot of viewers assume that what they're seeing in a film like The Color of Pomegranates is pure ethnography. Whereas one of the things I found out when talking to people who were worked on the film, like Stepan Andranikan or Levon Abrahamian, who is a, a cultural anthropologist, and he has a small role in the film, is that Parajanov 
not only was not religious, but he was interested in the theatre of religion. And he was um, prone to kind of surrealistic improvisations, you know, kind of fake rituals, because uh, which, you know, explains why many people have compared his films to those of Kenneth Anger. And I think that's a very good comparison. Parajanov himself was kind of creating uh, anthrop- surrealistic rituals and anthropology. And the strange thing is, is that if you go to Hutzolchesna, which is the area of Western Ukraine on the Carpathians and the Polish border, in Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, there is a kind of Reading ritual presented involving a kind of yoke in which uh, the, you know, the bride and groom are kind of bound. And Porajanov invented this, but because that film is kind of seen as some sort of ethnographic document, that ritual has kind of been absorbed as part of history. That's what's interesting, the way that all of those kind of post-Soviet countries are looking for a sense of identity through history. You know, fidelity to uh, ethnology is not necessarily an issue. Uh, so you have things which Parajanov invented being taken as kind of gospel, basically. It is complicated, this relationship between national identity of these kind of countries like Armenia, Georgia and Ukraine and uh, Soviet authority. So all of these films, you know, at the time, if you look, for example, in Georgia, Tengiz Abeladze is making films about Georgian writers. In Ukraine, uh, the, the, is based on a, um, you know, a, a Ukrainian writer, The Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. It was for a literary anniversary. Uh, Mikhail Kotsubinsky, that's why a film was commissioned. In the case of The Color of Pomegranates, it's ostensibly about, you know, an Armenian poet, Said Nova. And, uh, it's this balancing act in terms of basically, well, you can have your exploration of Armenian culture, but don't fall into the trap of Armenian nationalism, uh, because that will create problems, as it did for Parajanov in Ukraine. So the studios themselves, they tended to have less resources than those in Russia. Uh, the good technical equipment and film stock was reserved for the main studios and Lem Film and Moss Film. There were technical problems, which you can see from the memos which James Stefan kind of curated uh, in relating to the film stock. Parajanov complains about the amount of time that was wasted testing what he considered defective film stock. So... It is also an issue in terms of how once those films were produced out of a budget in order to recoup the production costs, those kind of borderline countries had to export them, not just abroad, uh, and that was done through sub-export film, but also within the Soviet Union. And that really created all the problems in terms of the, the Armenian version and the Russian version of the film, because... Although Parajanov arrived at a, a kind of a domestic court over which he had control, the authorities in Moscow said that this version as it stands cannot be exported through the Soviet Union. And therefore, they stipulated changes. And that's why Yudkevich was brought in as a kind of mediator to um, diplomatically recut the film to satisfy the requirements of Moscow. It's interesting when you look at the, those documents because the concerns of the authorities in both Moscow and Yerevan. It's not necessarily about ideology, it's about uh, comprehensibility. Uh, it would be interesting to do a comparative study between the memos uh, which were given by those um, bureaucrats in Moscow and Yerevan and Hollywood studio heads, because it's basically saying the same thing. This film is fine for intellectuals, but will the masses understand it? 
And uh, Stepan Andranikan in the in the documentary I made, and he says something very interesting that when they took the color of pomegranates to uh, intellectuals, they, they got what Porajanov was trying to do, this kind of poetic cinema. And when they took it to the villages, uh, villagers understood what Porajanov was trying to do. The real problems rested with the kind of the red middle class, <laughs> and uh, I think that's. That's still a problem today. It's this. It's slightly condescending, assuming people won't understand it, and uh, the, the the assumption made that this is this is fine for me because I've got a middle class education, but it's not not fine for someone who watches I don't know just Marvel movies. Therefore, we have to simplify it and spell things out, which is what Yurkevich tried to do. You know, it was a complicated relationship. And, you know, and the motivation was purely economic in a way that it was an expensive film by Armenian standards to produce. And they did actually have to kind of somehow justify the expenditure. And uh, it was important that the film was distributed around the Soviet Union. In the end, I mean, there were different classes of distribution and this kind of got the, the lowest class, which basically meant like a, you know, a one print. It was for, for exclusive, like film clubs. It wasn't widely seen, which, um, this version was never banned within the Soviet Union, the Yurtkevich version. It just basically was given shitty distribution, which again is, it's not unlike what Hollywood does. If with a film they don't like, they just dump it without any promotion. It is interesting when you kind of look at the production histories of a film like The Color of Pomegranate and uh, Hollywood films from the same period. And now the big difference is, is that would a film like The Color of Pomegranate be even, would it go into production in a kind of system outside of the Soviet Union on this scale? I don't think so. I mean, this is a big project, not a little art film. It's not Jack Smith in terms of, I think, you know, it, it is interesting. I, I, I do think you can look at a film like Parajan of Sashik Karib and look at something like Normal Love by Jack Smith. And they're both playing similar games. They're both kitsch and this kind of uh, exotic Orientalism. And But at the same time, Jack Smith is making films out of literally nothing on 16mm and trash. Whereas this film, it was intended to be the kind of the flagship, you know, the tentpole movie of the Armenian slate of 1968, 1969. So it's very easy. I think it's a luxury to kind of like whine and complain about the brutal Soviet regime curtailing Parajanov's uh, uh, kind of right to express himself. The film is based on poems by an Armenian poet. It's made by someone who's ethnically Armenian, made in Armenia. How much of this movie is actually a story of Armenia versus the story of Sayatnova's poetry? Sayatnova was an Ashug, kind of a, a bard. He traveled outside of Armenia. He traveled to Georgia, to Azerbaijan, to Persia. And his songs kind of incorporate elements from his travels. Uh, they have uh, variants in different languages. So he, he really became not just a king of songs, but he king of the Caucasus. Also, the majority of the film is shot in Armenia, but there's an awful lot of locations shot in Georgia. The scene shot in Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan. The studio work done in uh, Kiev. And the film was uh, ultimately recut in Moscow. So there, I, I think it's wrong to see it exclusively as an Armenian film uh, in a way that I think it's wrong to actually think of Sainova as exclusively Armenian uh, you know, he, he, this is a film about the Caucasus. 
it's not as you said it's not a conventional biography uh, it's a film about the inner life of a poet what goes on inside a poet rather than the events outside it is important to stress that in the production notes and materials and memos uh, which James unearthed it's very clear that the studios at the time weren't interested in a conventional biography they welcomed the idea of this alternative approach that's really what Porajanov set out to do. He set out to make a film about the inner life of a poet. Now, what form would that take cinematically? What is the inner life of a poet? And I think what, what he did effectively, consciously or not, he uh, revitalized a debate in Soviet cinema, which stretched back to the 1920s. And that is... At the time, there were a lot of formalist literary critics like Viktor Shklovsky, uh, Lev Yakobinsky, Yuri Tianov, and they postulated a parallel between literature and cinema. If you were to make a distinction between prosaic and poetic literature, could you therefore have a cinema which was poetic as opposed to narrative? And what form would a poetic cinema take? If montage is about rhythm, could you have visual rhymes? If poetry is full of metaphors, could you have visual metaphors? So, of course, there are elements of this, most notably in the films of Dozhenko. And Dozhenko was the main influence of Parajanov's generation of Soviet filmmakers when he was educated in the gig. This was uh, Eisenstein was still um, a cloud hung over his reputation. Remember, the second part of Ivan the Terrible uh, had ex had been effectively banned, and it was only during the after Khrushchev and the Thaw that his work was started to be rehabilitated. But Dovzhenko was an active influence on people like Tarkovsky and Parajanov. Given the fact that he toyed with these poetic ideas in Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, he really takes it to the next level and the color of pomegranates. There are all sorts of elements in which he's kind of effectively translating elements of Side Nova's poetry visually and in terms of the soundtrack and relating them to Side Nova's biography. And, uh, you know, and examples, you know, like the, the scene, for example, with uh, the the peacocks in the windows and visually it looks like a cage because of the shape of the window you know it can be very simple like that or it can be highly complex the the rhythmic patterns the visual rhythmic patterns between say for example the scene with the the, the soap running between the breasts of the woman in the baths at the beginning of the film the lace being wrapped around the conch or the the mother of pearl dropping on the body of the comancha so the, in each case, you have a kind of a spherical form and uh, uh, something, you know, something white colliding or wrapping around it. And there are all these games with just pure color, these alternations between black and white. This themes of rocking, this metronome, this bouncing, uh, which kind of recurs throughout all of these tableau sections of the film. All of these elements echo throughout the film and resonate. This is, on the one hand, this is quite simple in terms of the story is about a poet who, um, you know, becomes an Ashug, uh, who falls in love with Princess Anna and is cast out, spends his time in a monastery and ultimately dies. But at the same time, it is incredibly complex, as complex as Eisenstein's Ivan the Terrible in terms of its visual associations. 
Parajanov, I think, had an idea, and that's certainly evident in the literary scenario, which is why I asked James to translate this from Russian, and we included it in the booklet featured on the, the Blu-ray. But also, I think he was finding this aesthetic during the shooting. Uh, there are an awful lot of scenes which he improvised on set, which are not even indicated in the literary scenario. And then finally, the third stage is creating many of those associations during the editing of the film. For me personally, this is why The Color of Pomegranates is the Parajanov film, because it's a film in which he was finding an aesthetic. Afterwards, the aesthetic was established, and there is an element, particularly in the Sorami Fortress, when you could say that it becomes a mannerism, this kind of moving tableau. But certainly in The Color of Pomegranates, he's searching for this poetic cinema. And I think it's much more sophisticated and advanced than many of the silent films and the discourse at the time uh, surrounding the idea of a poetic cinema. And it had a profound influence on filmmakers working not just in the Soviet borderlands, but in Eastern Europe, films like Parajanov. Zhuevsky was, uh, Color of Pomegranates was a huge influence on him in terms of embracing artifice not hiding the fact that film is artificial. Of course, it manifests itself very differently in films like La Femme Publique, but in interviews around the time of La Femme Publique, a film about a film, Shubavsky was referring to Parajanov, of saying Parajanov proved that film is fundamentally artificial. So it's all there in The Color of Pomegranates. I do have to thank you for the booklet that comes along with the disc. It is fantastic and so well put together. Well, thank you. I'm glad you got something out of it. It really was, for me, a case of what is the bare essentials to kind of complement the two versions of the film. I think one of the things which interested me about The Color of Pomegranates was the fact that it isn't a finished film. It's not something which is ever definitive, and therefore it was necessary to put together a package in which the the viewer had access to a range of materials from which they could kind of construct something themselves. So to include the literary script, the two versions of the film, documents detailing the transition from the Armenian version to the Yudkevich version, Levon Gregorian's film, which features some of the outtakes from the movie, I remember actually putting together this Parajov report for the BFR and at night. It was, I think, certainly in the UK, it was just, and it was the fad of deconstructed food. I kind of approached the, this particular release like a deconstructed documentary. So all the elements of a documentary are in place. The interviews, the archival material, the film clips. But unlike a documentary, you're not imposing a narrative. There is an interactive quality. And I think that's key to the film, there isn't a fundamental underlying meaning which is going to unlock its secrets. I think it's arrogant and stupid to impose that. But the joy of the film is that, you know, what you get out of the film is what you bring to it. It's like what Hodorowsky used to say about El Topo. If, if, if you're great, El Topo's great. If, if you're nothing, El Topo's nothing. Just as Parajanov was kind of bringing a collage approach to both the making of the film and also its editing, it was great to actually approach the booklet as a collage to juxtapose, for example, a set report in a Soviet film magazine with all the kind of the backstage antics of all these bureaucrats in Moscow and Yerevan arguing amongst themselves, followed by Tarkovsky and Viktor Shklovsky's letter uh, really underlying the importance and significance of Parajanov of that generation of filmmakers. The interview I did with Tigran Mansourian for the World as a Window documentary 
I only included a fragment, but the booklet was really a place to include the rest of the interview, which is fascinating. And I think the, the music for the film and the sound design is really under-discussed. Uh, it's very easy to understand why people focus on the visual qualities of the colour of pomegranates, but that soundtrack and that sound design is really equally remarkable. And also the relationship between the sound and the image, the use of silences, silences when you don't expect them, like when the, 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 the roof of the church crashes and Yudkevich puts like a, a gong sound on his version. But in Parajana's film, he wanted to subvert audience expectations and made a point of having silence when it crashes on the ground. So all of these ideas about sound, when to have sounds, when not to have sounds, and relationship between sound design or sound effects and also the musical element, it's really fascinating. This isn't really kind of authentic field recordings uh, of, of uh, you know, Armenian folk music, like in some ways Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors was in, in one aspect of the film. This was more like music concrete. And Tigran Mansourian said that they were influenced by Pierre Schaffer in, 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 in France. And um, so the film is really a complex collage of various sources, comitas, music, uh, lines of poetry from Sight Nova, manipulated, played over one another. Uh, it's really quite something. James Stephan's essay, of course. You know, James really is the authority of Parajanov in the English-speaking world. And I think it was imperative to actually have James contextualize not just the production history, but Parajanov at that particular stage in his career. And it was great to actually have a preface from Martin Scorsese, you know, without whose film foundation and the world cinema project we wouldn't be in this luxurious position of actually having a 4k restoration of the film the most difficult part of the booklet was the fact that we had too much material it was really a fight what to include and make the painful decision about what to exclude there were an awful lot of costume designs we had access to which unfortunately couldn't use simply because of space overall the the package of the the two Blu-rays, the, the two versions of the film, the combination of the archival documentaries like Ron Holloway's Parajana for Requiem, stuff which we'd already produced for the DVD and some new features, along with Kiev Frescoes, which in many ways is a kind of catalyst for the visual ideas which Parajana explored in The Colour of Pomegranates. It kind of makes an interesting whole of text, moving image from film. I'm not usually happy with blu-ray editions which i've produced uh because you only really notice the flaws but in this particular case yes you kind of think i'm okay with that i don't mind having my name on it so yeah it kind of worked out in that way what are you working on these days well uh we just finished uh high at the edgar wrights uh this is uh for second side and uh also berlin alexander Platz. uh but Right now, I was in Yerevan last week. The work on the colour of pomegranates really laid the groundwork for um, further restorations. And there's a short film Parajanov made, Hakopov Natanian, uh, about a painter, which he made roughly at the same time as the colour of pomegranates. So um, working with the, uh, the Armenian Cinema Centre, the kind of the Armenian National Archives, uh, we're in the process of uh, restoring that film and looking at ways of uh, restoring the outtakes of the color of pomegranates, which you can glimpse in Levon Gregorian's film. But there's an awful lot of material, and I think it gives a, a fascinating insight into Parajanov's working methods. Uh, he um, 
very clearly he didn't have a continuity supervisor on set. <laughs> Each of the t- takes, not only did he shoot with a very kind of small ratio there aren't that many versions and takes the same shot but each shot is wildly different from the next so it really is a an example of um maybe not how not to make films but rather a different way of making films and uh, and i think that's very clear in that it's interesting instead of showing parajano's working method but the material is so strong uh, i think it really deserves to be seen so uh, we'll see what happens on that front um, but, you know, of course, there are all sorts of uh, challenges posed by um, the condition of the materials and also the fact that both archiving and restoration work is a relatively new thing in not just Armenia, but many of the kind of the former Soviet borderline countries. So uh, we're trying to build on the experience of working with the color of pomegranates to find ways of yeah, making Armenian films of the 1960s and earlier available. And uh, on top of that, not just available, but in restored copies. So, yeah, that's that's what I'm working on. Daniel, thank you so much for your time today. No problem. Nice to catch up. Kind of your history with uh, Parajonov and the color pomegranates. When I was an undergraduate at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, I saw clips from Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors in a language of film course. I was just completely bowled away by it. Like I had never seen anything like it before. I thought the camera work and the use of color in it was really interesting. So I got curious about this um, filmmaker, Parajonov. And literally that same semester, this was in the late 1980s, I think it was 87, 88. This is, you know, during the period of the thaw, they had taken a number of banned films off the shelf and started making them publicly available again as part of Glasnost. And one of the films was A Well for the Thirsty by Yuri Ilyenko, who was Parajanov's cinematographer for Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors. And he was friends with Virko Ballet, who was the music director of the Nevada Symphony Orchestra and a music professor at the University of Nevada at Las Vegas. He went to the San Francisco Film Festival to show a print of this film, A Well for the Thirsty. He actually stopped in Las Vegas and he went to my class. So that same semester, Yuri Ilyenko visited my class and we managed to see A Well for the Thirsty at this movie theater in Las Vegas because they had arranged for a special screening. And I saw another one of his films there as well. And it just opened up this whole world of a completely different cinema to me. Around the same time, this was when Ashik Karib was starting to play in theaters and there were articles about it coming out. And I'd also read about Parajanov's past, like his imprisonment on charges of homosexuality and all that. So I was just very curious about all of this. And of course, the color of pomegranates as well, and the history behind that film. 
like the fact that it didn't be it had been re-edited and and so on. So I I finally managed to see a video cassette of the film sometime later because it had been released by this company called IFEX in the U.S., which distributed most of the Soviet films at that time. And I was, again, just completely bowled away by this film, even though the video cassette wasn't very good, just because the images and the, and the music and uh, the editing and everything were just so unique for this particular film. I developed kind of an obsession with it. So a few years later, the Armenian version of the film, which was touted as the so-called director's cut, showed at the AFI Film Festival in Los Angeles. And I was really crestfallen because I couldn't go to L.A. to see it. And then one of my friends said, well, why don't you just bring it to Las Vegas? So I did, you know, through the film studies department there. We arranged for a special screening in town. And so that was around the time that I was thinking about what to do with my life. And I met this professor at Emory University, where I am now, I told him about the screening that I was doing. He'd, he'd come to uh, he'd come to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, to give a lecture on Central Asian cinema. And again, he showed some really interesting films. So I struck up a conversation with him afterwards, and he invited me to apply for graduate school. And then I just embarked on this course to really study Parajanov and this film in particular. And one thing led to another. I got my PhD. I published this book on Parajanov a few years back, and I'm, you know, still continuing to do projects around this because it's just such a huge topic. It's basically a lifelong task, sort of understanding this man and his art and the context that he worked in. Well, tell me more about the man. How did he get into film? And you talked about him going to jail. Did he go to jail just one time or was it multiple times? That was multiple times. The main arrest that people talk about was the one in 1973, and he was imprisoned until 1977. And that's when there was this big international campaign to get him released. But he was, in fact, arrested, arrested two other times. The first time was when he was a student at Vigik, which is the state filmmaking institute in Moscow. Uh, he was arrested on charges related to homosexuality, it's pretty obvious that the authorities, when they wanted to put him out of commission because he was too outspoken and he was friends with Ukrainian nationalists, etc., this was in the early 70s, it's pretty clear that they decided that homosexuality was the best thing to get him with. So they had that case in the 1970s, and then later on in the early 1980s, he was arrested again on bribery charges, which was arguably he did, but so did everyone else in the Soviet Union. And it's again, it's because he was outspoken and they just wanted to, to get rid of him. What was it like for a young man to get into the filmmaking business in Soviet Russia when he was coming up? He started out really more in the arts in general. Like he studied at the Tbilisi Conservatory for a while. He studied violin, I believe dance as well and maybe also singing. And he didn't get into filmmaking till shortly after that. And he applied for the Geek, you know, the State Filmmaking Institute, and was accepted. And he studied under this filmmaker named Igor Savchenko, who was one of the older generation of Ukrainian filmmakers. He's 
roughly a contemporary of Eisenstein, maybe a bit younger. And so he studied under this older generation of classic Soviet film directors, but this was during the late Stalin era. Savchenko died of a heart attack, probably because of the pressure that he was under as a filmmaker during that time. Parajanov, along with these younger filmmakers in his class, initially they didn't have as many opportunities to make films because that was this period just before the thaw during the late Stalin era when there were very few films made. And so all of the films were assigned to established filmmakers, and they made only like a handful of films a year around that time. Uh, but there was this really interesting pent-up energy that was circulating among this younger generation, and that became what is known as the thaw in Soviet cinema, which is, of course, part of this larger artistic and cultural thaw in the Soviet Union as a whole. A lot of the filmmakers began to focus on more like realistic depictions of daily life and the problems that people face. Parajanov went in a bit of a different direction because he was always interested more in folklore. In fact, his first student film was based on a folktale. He also maybe didn't have a clear sense of what he wanted to do. So his early films in Ukraine were more like genre pictures. There was a collective farm musical. Uh, there was an anti-religious propaganda film, a wartime melodrama, and so on. And you can see him just trying to come up with some interesting visual ideas, but he was a bit constrained by the framework of these narratives that he was working in. So it wasn't really until 1963, 1964, when he started making Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors that he really found his voice with this union of a very extravagant visual style, uh, folklore and, uh, you know, kind of folk narratives, etc. After he made Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, he was trying to make a film called Kiev Frescoes. Kiev Frescoes was supposed to be a medium-length film, like probably 45 minutes or so, about life in contemporary Kiev. And it's an autobiographical project. It's about a filmmaker who lives in this apartment on Victory Square, and he's observing sort of the 20th anniversary celebrations of the liberation of Ukraine from the Germans. And at the same time, he's undergoing some questions and problems in his own personal life, like he's divorced. He has a son who seems to be turning out to be a juvenile delinquent. And so there's this kind of eight and a half style autobiographical narrative, which is joined with a story. This filmmaker is, is connected by chance to some other characters, which are a longshoreman whom he asks to deliver some flowers for him but they're misdelivered to the house of a war widow who works at a museum. And the longshoreman and the war widow hook up. So there's a, a nice sort of tender story there that's juxtaposed with the filmmaker. So it was like this kind of broad canvas of contemporary life in Kiev. And the film did attract the interest of the authorities, or the project, I should say, but when he got into the shooting stage, he wanted to show off this new visual style of his, which emphasized tableaus and pantomime, just like we see in The Color of Pomegranates. And they were just completely taken aback by these screen tests. 
So they had him go back and work on the screenplay and so on. But the project was canceled ultimately. And that's when he started developing this idea for a film about the Armenian poet Sayat Nova, which became The Color of Pomegranates. How did Color of Pomegranates manage to survive? If they were questioning his new visual style with Kiev frescoes, how on earth did Color of Pomegranates actually make it to the screen? Well, I think he got in on the nick of time because this is in the mid to late 60s, like starting 65, 66, etc., there was a crackdown in the Soviet Union, just a general ideological crackdown, which culminated in the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. There had already been some films that were banned and shelved at that time, uh, like that film, A Well for the Thirsty, that I mentioned by Yuri Lyenko, and that was at the Dovzhenko Film Studio in Kiev. And, of course, Tarkovsky's Andrei Rublyov. There were already intimations that things were going bad, but Parajanov made the film in Armenia. And Armenia was a little bit more independent, and there was a bit more support for experimental arts, and it wasn't as ideologically rigid as things were getting in Ukraine during that time. And I think the other factor was that the studio administration in Armenia really wanted to have an international hit along the lines of Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors because it's a small studio and they had been criticized by um, the Central Filmmaking Committee in Moscow for you know being inefficient and not producing high enough quality films and, and so on. So I think that they kind of latched on to Parajanov as this opportunity to do something that would really make a big splash. And as, as a matter of fact, even though he had a lot of battles with people back and forth, they also gave him a lot of latitude when they made the when he made the film. So he had the there were actually three different studio heads at the time when he was making film, the film. There was a lot of turnover in that studio, but they all basically let him do what he wanted for the most part. Please help me feel better. The first time you saw The Color of Pomegranates, did you completely understand everything that was going on? Oh, Lord, no. It's a tremendously challenging film. I think I think most people, when they first watch it, they see something that's really beautiful and really striking, but they don't know necessarily what to make of it. And, you know, if you watch it closely, you can pick out some kind of narrative, but it is um, it is very challenging to watch. And that's one of the reasons why I became interested in it, because precisely because it was so beautiful and striking, but also so difficult to understand, I became obsessed with learning more about this film and, and trying to get to the bottom of it. The first thing I really wanted to do was to understand the cultural and, and historical context behind the film. So I did a lot of reading on this poet, Sayat Nova, and the tradition that he worked in. Of course, um, you know, reading on the history and culture of the Transcaucasus, you know, Armenia, Georgia, Azerbaijan, which are all reflected in the film to a certain extent. So, so part of it is understanding the milieu in which this poet lived. And then, you know, the, the thing is, though, the film is also very playful as, as a work of poetic cinema. It's also playing with the parameters and boundaries of cinematic language. So, you know, the other way that I look at it 
is precisely as a work of poetic cinema. And what does that mean, like in terms of visual metaphors, in terms of the grammar of the shots, shot composition, and so on? Because uh, Parajanov consciously made this as a kind of film poem about a poet. The sound, the way that he uses sound, is so incredible in the film. That's actually one of the most interesting aspects of the film. And I think that the images are great, but I don't think it would have really been an authentically great film if it weren't for the soundtrack and the way that it interacts with the film and gives it additional layers of depth. So the, the soundtrack was basically composed as a music composition by Tigran Mansurian, who was a young composer at that time in Armenia. And he constructed the soundtrack as a kind of audio collage. You have some spoken words in the film. Sometimes it's synchronized, but most of the time not. And then he also worked in audio from Armenian church services, fragments of Saitanova's poems, really striking sound effects, you know, like when the monks are crushing the grace with their feet, the sound is really heightened. The same thing when the monks are sucking on pomegranates in one shot. It's really an experimental work of sound cinema that goes farther than just about anything I've ever seen. The only comparisons I can think of with it are that film, A Well for the Thirsty by Olienko that I mentioned, and also some of the very early sound films, such as Deserter, by Pudovkin and Ivan by Dovzhenko, and of course Enthusiasm by Ziga Vertov, where they really where they really play with the relationship between the sound and the image. So it's a tradition that goes back to the experimental period of the early 1930s in the Soviet Union. But Parjanov, I think, pushes it to a new level, and he also gives it an artistic coherence. You know, working with Tigran Mansurian because it's so deeply embedded in Armenian culture. Well, speaking of that, you've got the poetry going on. You've got the history of the Caucasus. You've got the filmmaker's history himself. I'm very curious about that Armenian history and the way that the things that possibly happened between when the poetry was written and when the film was being shot, how that kind of colors everything. I'm especially curious if there's any possible influence uh, or discussion being had about the Armenian genocide in the film. If you read Parjanov's script, he doesn't really have anything there like that. It's just focused on the poet. But I think it does come through in a way in the music. There's a scene in the film where the poet returns to his childhood in his dream, and you hear some music on the soundtrack, which is actually, there are actually two pieces by Komitas, an Armenian ethnomusicologist and composer who was a genocide survivor, and he suffered from severe PTSD and ended up in psychiatric clinics in the last years of his life. So if you're an Armenian viewing the film during that time, I would argue that you were probably aware of that connection with Komitas and would probably read these deeper meanings into the film, especially with like the overall theme of historical violence in the film as a whole. One thing to remember is that this came just after the 50th anniversary of the Armenian genocide, and there was a public protest in Yerevan 
which resulted in the construction of a genocide memorial during that period. So it definitely was on people's minds, and it was something that people talked about at that time. So, yeah, I think that you can read other layers of history uh, within the film. And it's certainly, it's certainly rich enough to allow for that. And I'm also curious as far as Soviet Union in 1969, how that might have affected the way that the story is told, especially by this somewhat subversive, I mean, he hadn't gone to jail three times yet, but had been to jail at this time, this somewhat subversive filmmaker making this film, what he kind of brought to the table. So Parjanov himself was a very outspoken and extravagant and provocative personality. And in some ways, you can view this experimentation of his as a kind of challenge to people to really make them, you know, rethink kind of old conventional ways of looking at cinema, especially within this tradition of socialist realism. And people definitely understood that as a challenge. Some people embraced it. Others didn't. So, for instance, there was this critic named Michal Blayman who read the script and accused it of being subjective, which, of course, has a very negative connotation during that time. He was, he was essentially intimating that it was like this work of bourgeois formalism. And in other, at other times, he suggested that Parjanov really didn't have a place in the Soviet film industry. But then, on the other hand, there were other people that supported experimentation like this. So Parjanov kind of was a very polarizing figure, and he threw himself right into the middle of these debates about aesthetics in the Soviet Union during this time. When the film was complete, I know that it went through some censorship issues. Can you discuss that a little bit? The editing process for the film was very protracted, and I, and I think actually there's some different reasons for this. First of all, they had a lot of problems during the shoot. There was some footage that Parjanov wanted to shoot but wasn't able to. Um, they had problems with the film stock and so on although they did definitely end up with enough footage to put a film together. But a lot of the things that Parjanov did were kind of improvised on the spot. So it was a bit challenging to put together and to shape into a coherent text. So it went through multiple drafts. The version that has been restored is the Armenian release version, which had already been through a number of drafts and had some required changes made to it. Uh, one of their requirements was that they remove the name of the poet Syed Novah from the title of the film and also from the chapter titles. So uh, the, the Armenian Communist Party had requested that because they felt that the film was not enough about Syed Novah that it you know, went off too far in its own direction. So it ended up actually making the film more difficult to understand, you could argue. Although the new chapter titles that we have on this Armenian version are good. They're by this Armenian writer named Hrant Matevosyan, and they're done in this poetic vein, and they definitely connect thematically with each of the chapters that we see. And they do kind of tell you about like the, the emotional tone and the underlying themes of each of the chapters. It, I don't think it was so much that they cut whole scenes out or anything like that. It was just a matter of like shaping the overall direction of where the text was going and and what the film was saying in a way that was acceptable to people. This version was released in Armenia, 
but the authorities in Moscow at the Central State Film Committee, Goskino, did not like the film, and they did not want to release it in the rest of the Soviet Union. This filmmaker, Sergei Yutkevich, who was another contemporary of Eisenstein, roughly, wanted to get the film more widely seen because he was also a script reader, and he liked the project as a whole, and he liked Parajanov's film, so he recut it and gave it new chapter titles to explain things more, and also reordered some scenes and, and so on, um, in order to say that there had been some corrections made to the film and that it was okay to distribute it in the rest of the Soviet Union. And in fact, it did get distribution after that, although very limited distribution because the people in Moscow, um, again, didn't care for the film and also because they thought it wasn't really marketable. And so they didn't want to strike a whole bunch of prints for a film that they didn't think would draw a large audience. Well, did it ultimately end up being successful or not? Yes, probably, but in a in a kind of a cult film manner. For instance, there's this um, scholar, Noam Kleman, who knew Yutkevich and had seen the film when it came out. And he said that it only showed at like maybe one theater in Moscow, but it drew a very good audience. And there were definitely people interested in it. So it, it, ha- it developed a kind of hidden reputation almost. And there were a couple of reviews about it, but not very many. It didn't attract nearly the attention that Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors did. But the kicker was that the authorities in Moscow refused overseas distribution. So they wouldn't even they wouldn't even let people pick it up for showing in France or the US or whatever. So that really limited the ability of people to talk about the film. Well, how was Parajanov seen by his contemporaries, by other filmmakers around the world? Definitely, he had his admirers in the Soviet Union. Um, Andrei Tarkovsky was one of them. In fact, the two really admired each other. Other filmmakers and critics did see it and write about it. Like, I know Antonioni was really interested in Parajanov. And I mean, there were other people as well. So, for instance, Martin Scorsese became a fan of Parajanov and this film in particular, and that was why it was restored by his World Cinema Project. So there were, so it was never widely seen, but people who were in the film industry and film critics, etc., knew about it and were really fascinated by it, I guess you might say. You did put out a book, The Cinema of Sergei Parajanov, a few years ago, and I'm curious, how long did that take to put together for you? Well, it was years. It was a, a very long project because, I mean, it was, you know, I, I did this as a, as a PhD dissertation, but during that time, I had to study Russian. I also studied Georgian for a couple of years, and I studied Ukrainian on my own to get a reading knowledge. So it took longer than usual for a dissertation. And then I had a, a difficult time just trying to figure out what to do with all of this material. So it, it, you know, all told, it took me almost 20 years to get to the point where the book was really ready and, and where I'd figured out what I could, could actually do with it. So one of, the, one of the things I decided was to reduce the amount of biographical material and focus on his career as a filmmaker, you know, but still in chronological order. So you have sort of a thumbnail sketch of a biography and you have all of this historical context about the Soviet Union during that time and and um, so on. But it is really 
structured around his films. That leaves out a lot. So it, because, because he did have such a really rich and complex life, um, there's a lot of things that I couldn't even touch on in the book. And I didn't actually say that much about his artworks, which are really interesting in their own right. He produced hundreds of artworks during his lifetime, especially collages. And uh, you can see a large number of them on display at the Parajanov Museum in Yerevan. Is there going to be a part two coming out of the book? I am working on a biography. Again, it's going to take me a while, hopefully not 20 years. I want to get this thing finished eventually. But I still have a lot more archival research to do with that. So I'm going to have to make multiple trips back to that part of the world, interview more people, look at archival documents, etc., until I really have enough material to put together what needs to be done for this particular project. And then I'm also uh, working on translations of his scripts because those are really interesting. And they actually were translated, several of them were translated into English a number of years ago, but it was a secondhand translation from the French. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of problems with that. So I want to go back to the originals in Russian. I've already done the translation for The Color of Pomegranates as part of that Blu-ray set. And I'm going to be doing some more scripts as well. Yeah, that script in the Color Pomegranates booklet is, or it's more than a booklet, it's basically a book unto itself. It is so fascinating to read where, I don't think it's necessarily where he started, but where he was at at one point, uh, comparing that versus where we ended up at. That's a really interesting problem, looking at that script and comparing it with what we see in the film. I think Parjanov was still trying to figure out what he wanted to do, but I think he also saw that script as an independent work, as an, as an independent artistic work. It's possible that he never intended to do some of the things in the script that we see in the film. And then, of course, the film has all pantomime and, and these tableaus, so it has a, the, the script, of course, takes you into Sayatnova's uh, mind in a lot of ways. And you see that in the film, but it's kind of hard to understand or to really fully appreciate the fact that it does often go into Sayatnova's mind just because of the style of the film overall. Well, in that way, it really speaks to me as more of a surrealist film, since it does mix narrative and dream imagery, and just you do have a hard time telling, quote-unquote, reality from fantasy. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Parajanov was very interested in surrealism, that whole aspect of dreams, but not just dreams, also sexual desire, which is a huge part of surrealism, and the interest in childhood. So there's like this, there's a, a, a very deep psychological element to the film that I think is very much connected with uh, surrealism. And the games with language, in this case, cinematic language, I think are definitely another connection with surrealism. Well, yeah, that's also where I'm curious where Parajanov kind of injects himself into this, because obviously he can't know everything about where the poet was. I mean, he can interpret the poetry and can interpret, you know, we know about his life, but it feels like there's some Parajanov inside of the characters that are on screen, as we would expect that a filmmaker would do. Very much so. And, and, and in fact, on one level, the film is deeply autobiographical. And he was even open about this. So at the time when the film was made, 
uh, he said how um, he identified with Syed Nova as a poet who grew up in Tbilisi as a Tbilisi Armenian like him. So he sees them as having kind of a common cultural heritage. And so he's exploring Syed Nova's childhood through the lens of his own childhood. And I think there's other pretty deliberately autobiographical elements as well. Princess Anna, you, you see in the dream sequence, you see her having this golden blonde hair. And uh, I'm quite sure that that's a reference to Parajanov's ex-wife, Svetlana Sherbatuk, who had blonde hair, and Parajanov mentioned it in, an, in another autobiographical script of his. So I think that he's thinking about his failed relationship with Svetlana Sherbatuk um, through the lens of Syed Nova and the poet's failed relationship with Princess Anna. You'd mentioned Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors as being one of the go-to films for Parajanov. And then, of course, Color Pomegranates, which we've been discussing. Where should viewers go next? What else is a good way to see a representation of his work? His major films, there actually aren't that many of them. Because, you know, the first part of his career was more genre films. And then, you know, during the 1970s, in early 80s, he had been arrested, imprisoned, and wasn't allowed to make films again until the mid 80s. So he only had a he only had two more feature films after this: The Legend of the Sarami Fortress and Ashik Karib. And I think those films are also both really worth seeing. Maybe they're not as strong as The Color of Pomegranates and Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, but I know some critics feel that Ashik Karib is one of his greatest films in particular because it has this kind of playful dime store aesthetic to it, which is really appealing. Uh, but he also did some short films, which are much harder to see, but I think they're also really interesting as well. One of them is Jacob Hobnatanyan, which is on the old Kino DVD, but unfortunately it's not available on either of the Blu-ray editions, which are coming out, although hopefully it will be restored soon. And there's the short film Kiev Frescoes, which is actually the edited screen tests, and that's on the UK Blu-ray, so you can see that in a restored form. And then there's another short film of his, which I really like a lot, called Arabesques on the Theme of Pirosmani, which was made, I think, shortly after he did uh, The Legend of the Sarami Fortress. And it's, it, again, it's a, it's a documentary short about a painter, kind of like the short film Hakobob Natanyan. Doing my research on this episode, it almost feels like there are more films about Parajanov than there are Parajanov films. Is that a fairly good assessment? Yeah, I would say that's true. They're a varying quality. Some of them are quite good, some of them less so. I think what I like best in the in the films that are about Parajanov are the ones where you actually get to see him speak, where there are interviews with him. So you can just get a sense of like what an intriguing personality he was. Another, another of the documentaries, which I think is really interesting, is The Memories of Saito Nova by Levon Grigorian, where he shows outtakes from The Color of Pomegranates, because they'll survive. And so you get to see some of the ideas that he ended up not using, but they're you know, equally visually stunning as what we see in the finished film. It feels like Color of Pomegranates has 
inspired so many filmmakers. As I'm watching the film, I'm seeing these images and they just, they're so striking and it almost feels like I've seen some of these images before in films that came afterwards. You know, the, as I'm watching it, I'm just looking at this thinking, boy, this seems like Tarsum saw this before he did The Fall or. Oh, there's um, no question about that. Tarsum Singh was clearly influenced by Parjanov. And you can see that not just in the fall, but you can see it in the kind of dream sequences in the cell. And, of course, um, a couple of his music videos, Losing My Religion, and um, uh, I think it's called Sweet Lullaby by Deep, Deep Forest. And, of course, Mark Romanek also lists some images from the film in his video for Madonna's Bedtime Story. And there are other people that clearly draw upon Parajanov. Like you can see some elements, I think, of Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors in Kusturitsa's Underground in just a couple of places in the film. So yeah, he's had he's had a wide-ranging impact. Derek Jarman also clearly had seen Parajanov and was kind of citing him a little bit in some of his films. I can't even begin to imagine the work that you had to do to write your book to because it's not like all of this is just sitting out there and just waiting for you to put together the pieces that you are pretty much like a, a filmic anthropologist or sorry filmic archaeologist going through and then having to learn these other languages because that ain't easy and that you have to translate all of this stuff is just incredible it's a bit crazy you know, it's kind of it's it's kind of funny. Uh, I mean, not, don't get me wrong. This is you know this is a wonderful project and it's it's a life's work and it's very fulfilling. But um, a few years back, I started studying Italian because I was going to go to that film festival Il Cinema di Trovato in Bologna, and I thought, oh, I'll just study Italian for a few months, and uh, you know, so I can converse with people when I get there, and. While I was studying Italian, I was thinking like, you know, James, you could have studied Italian cinema. You really like Italian cinema, too. And it would have been so much easier. But, you know, I can't regret it because I've just met so many fascinating people in the process. And it's really taken me to a corner of the world, which most people never get to see, but is just absolutely amazing. So I, I certainly have no regrets delving into this whole thing. So what are you working on these days? Well, right now, um, I've started doing research again for that biography, interviewing a few people, putting some materials together. And I have other projects that I've been working on off and on. Like one of the things I'm very interested in is exhibition of Soviet cinema. So I, I presented a conference paper um, several years ago on widescreen Soviet cinema. And I've also done some research in wide format filmmaking in the Soviet Union. So I want to turn that into an article. And then I have like other personal projects too, like a, a novel, which I've written, which I'm, you know, seeking a publisher for right now. And also a screenplay as well, which are just completely different themes. So I have, I have lots of irons on the fire. That uh, idea of the formats in Soviet cinema sounds absolutely fascinating because I think of the way that widescreen was used in Italy, the way it was used in Japan, but I don't tend to think of how formats were used and what the history of that was in Soviet cinema. It had its own peculiarities. Uh, one of the things that I was kind of interested in is that they started going into 70 millimeter filmmaking 
of course, after it was done in the U.S., but they decided instead of having 65-millimeter camera negatives like we did, they went ahead and just used 70-millimeter negatives. So the negatives and the positive stocks were all the same size, which is actually not a bad idea. The problem is, in the process, is that you still have the Soviet factories that are making the film stock. And they could make stock with very good color, but it was also really variable in quality. So if you were doing a high-profile project in Moscow, you might get excellent film stock. But if you're trying to make a film in Armenia, like Parajanov was, you didn't necessarily have good access to film stock. And actually, that was one of the problems that Parajanov had shooting the film, is not having good quality film stock. It made it tremendously difficult for him and his cinematographer to work on this project. And I, I remember um, the film War and Peace, which, have, which is, of course, like their biggest film of all time in the Soviet Union, just this mammoth, mammoth production. When it was restored, there was a video interview with Karin Shachnazadov, um, who was the director of Moss Film and a filmmaker of, in his own right, and he said that, you know, they looked at the negative and there were pieces of insect debris on it. So we're talking about like real ongoing problems with manufacturing. So I'm kind of interested in this contradiction between some really great ideas and promotion of technological innovation in the Soviet Union. But then, of course, you know, the, the problems with the day-to-day -day realities of actual, actually producing this stuff and getting it shown in theaters. I was recently talking to a guy who's kind of an expert in uh, the Canadian tech shelter films, and he was talking about how most of the Canadian films for at least a decade were being processed in one place in New York and the way that every film had kind of a same look just because of the processing. What were they doing in the Soviet Union? Were they processing everything through one place, or did they have different centers for processing? They didn't all go through a single place. But, you know, again, like the processing was, was another factor that could complicate matters. They did have multiple labs for processing film. So it, was, it wasn't like everything was completely centralized. James, if people are interested in you and your projects and what you've been working on, is there a good place for them to keep up with you? Well, I do have a website, but it's terribly out of date. So uh, it's a, like a, you know, it's a personal blog and I've just been so busy with work and then, you know, working on these Blu-rays and all that, that I haven't really put a lot of information on there, but I do have, I do have a website. It has some information about my book. It also has a number of older writings that I did for Turner Classic Movies because I used to write for them and I have like a hundred and uh, at least uh, well over 100 pieces, somewhere between 100 and 150 pieces that I wrote for them over the years. And so I have links to those. I need to check whether the links still work because you never know these days. And and I will be writing something more about the two different editions um, when, the, when the Criterion Collection edition comes out. Do you have people trying to argue with you as far as what is the best version of this, since there are multiple versions of The Color of Pomegranates? Do you have them saying, no, 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 the, the Russian version is the true version and the Armenian version is junk, or no, 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 it's the one that came out on the Japanese uh, DVD that's the best one? I mean, it's, it's pretty clear which version is closest to Parajanov's intentions, you know, with the caveat that, of course, it was a studio film and he didn't have the final cut on it. 
And of course, that's the Armenian version of the film. That's the one that he signed off on. And the Yukevich version was re-edited against his wishes. However, some people like that version better um, because that's the version that they're familiar with and they feel that it does actually succeed at making things a little bit easier to understand. Um, I don't I don't quite agree, but you know, I, I certainly understand where they're coming from. Um, the the problem is is that Yudkevich didn't just shorten the film and change the chapter titles. He also rearranged things, so he changed the meaning of certain scenes and introduced his own poetics on top of it, which were not necessarily Parajanov's, because Parajanov had a very clear idea about what he was trying to say through the film. So I'm sympathetic to the people who prefer the Yudkevich version, and I can fully understand, even though you know I don't. I mean, for me, it's really no contest that the Armenian version is more authentic and I think also more coherent artistically. James, thank you so much for your time today. This has been a real pleasure finally talking with you. Yeah, you're very welcome. Yeah, I've been looking at some of the pieces in your blog and they're just they're your your podcast and they're they're really fascinating. You've just managed to interview such a great selection of people over the years. back and we were talking about the color of pomegranates now we did talk about the different cuts of the film and they are available on the second site blu-ray if i have one complaint about the second site blu-ray it is that the titles on the tv the the actual dvd menus themselves at least for my 46 year old eyes are absolutely impossible to read because they're yellow no it's white on yellow and i just i can't see it i have to actually like walk up to the tv and go oh okay now i can see it but luckily the the subtitles are gorgeous and that was one thing that i always had issues with with the uh the keynote stuff that you brought up before larry was just the burned in subtitles that it always just looks kind of sloppy and you could tell that it was just pulled right off of a, a film print. So it just that doesn't look very good. And you've brought up the colors. You've brought up the way that things look on that Kino version. I have to say they look a lot better on the second sight Blu-ray. I'm not sure how they're going to look on the Criterion edition. Now, James Stephan wrote a big piece about, the color differentials and comparing things to some of the film prints that he's actually managed to dig up. And James Stephan is fantastic. And he's such a scholar when it comes to this film and Parajanov's work. Um, but I have to say that I was just like, okay, I, I, I get lost when it comes to a lot of the discussion of color values and those kind of things. So I'm sure that you would know that stuff a lot better than I would. The keynote uh, version I had, at least it was it was consistent. But uh, you know, one did get the feeling that the the, the colors had faded, which is uh, what happens to um, uh, color film after a period. The vinegar syndrome uh, that degradates the 
the colors, especially like I said, red is like the first thing to go. It turns to to a muddy brown. Um, so it was it was acceptable in terms of like watching it for it. But I'm I'm sure the Blu-ray is going to be fabulous. To say I'd love to see what they do with that because um, uh, you know to bring back the colors, to bring back the nuance and the subtleties. Um, that stock that they were using was um, Perrineau says in an interview that he couldn't get uh, Eastman stock. I'm sure he would have preferred to have that stock because there's Eastman stock has a certain pastel uh, quality to it whereas the other like the stock that they use is very stark and very contrasty in terms of, of uh uh, not not a whole lot of pastels available in the in the cr- across the spectrum of the color, um, so maybe some of that will be uh, discovered and maybe they can bring back. But I think uh, in the Blu-ray. But I think that uh, probably the the film stock, Russian film stock, was not the greatest, you know. But for this, like I said earlier, the the, the earth tones, the 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 stones, the 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 ground, you know, all, there's always like some brown element in the in the film. So I don't think that the color was uh, so important in terms of like a real uh, wide palette. Uh, and I, I I wondered too when I saw it when I looked at it. I mean, at the very beginning when the pomegranates are. Uh, start bleeding out onto that linen cloth. Um, you, you know, uh, that was relatively red, uh, although a little mookish, um, th- that it, it might be like Washington, D.C., where you can't have any building taller than the, than the Capitol building, and maybe the color red, you couldn't have anything redder than the pomegranate red. I don't know, but that was what I thought possibly was the uh, impetus for for that for the red color there's one place where she says uh, you're 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 on fire and he mentions fire but he doesn't show fire he says you're you're on fire and your dress is on fire um, and she's wearing a red dress and that's that's probably the only place where there's really some uh, vivid red color uh, to my recollection. There's so much stuff that um, after reading about uh, Perginov himself and 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 he, you know all of the various things, I mean, you just you just want to dig into the film and find out more about it. Uh, Sacha Nova, uh, you know, you you want to know who these people were and what was going on. It's the mysteries of the Orient. Uh, personified because you don't know a lot of the things I mean there's the musical instruments and the you know he uses that I want to say lute but it's not exactly a lute throughout the film there's always the drum uh, being played and um, you you wonder like um, where 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 did all, where did that come and what is the significance of those instruments if they have a particular significance when um, the uh, woman is addressed as a man is tuning um, the instrument, there's a shot with it where she turns it back and forth, the string back and forth, and what the significance of that is. 
uh, or if it even has a significant, maybe just the movement itself was enough. But um, there's a lot of that. There's so much of that. And you want to know. And James Stephan, um, I mean, he says that it's just life's work finding out about this film and about uh, Paraginot uh, himself. Uh, so, you know, you can't get it all in his, his book that he, that he wrote, you know, which is, I understand the first English, uh, um, book about Perginov is fascinating. All of the different aspects of Perginov's life. And so you don't know where, where, you know, where the artist leaves off and it becomes part of the story that he takes, he lifts things from, um, uh, Noah's, uh, poetry. There's some very special, um, passages that, you know, he shows literally, he shows a bit of what, what the passage is. Uh, the rest of the time it's all imagery, um, based on, uh, what he, what he, um, Berginov saw himself, uh, how to relay that or how it affected him, the, the imagery. But it's a very deep film. So many layers, like you say. It's an onion. You start peeling away the layers, and it just gets more and more and more um, deep, you know, complicated. Yeah, this is one of those where I would say, don't let anybody try to tell you what this movie is about. You can read some interesting theories, but... I think this movie should always kind of remain open to interpretation because there are so many different ways you can go into this. Yeah, and the, the individual will see, you know, there's universals in it, and then there's individual things like the lace. Uh, the lace. Uh, I have a, a friend who's a clothes designer that, I, you know, I showed this to her. She was fascinated with the clothes in it, with the all, you know, that that was a specific. Uh, interest to her, but you know, I, I, for instance, found the faces, the faces that he used in the, in this film and his other films, had a great uh, sense of uh, finding these these really outstanding looking people. I do understand that he didn't like to um, use theatrical actors. And I guess that's because they played to the balcony too much, but he he, he wanted more of uh, the uh, quiet approach to that. There's not a whole lot of, of really animated, except for the horse. The horse, which he used in other films too, that that prances beautiful, beautiful imagery. Just gorgeous. You see that horse doing its number, and and um, it it is really quite inspiring. But as far as like uh, anybody telling you what the film is about. Uh, I think the film's about 72 minutes, didn't we say? That's what it's about. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Winter Kills. The search for a truth that could shake everything you ever believed in. What Nicholas Keegan will discover is the most dangerous, shattering revelation of our time. The Keegans are an American dynasty. What am I going to do with these girls that suck First they're hot, then they're cold. Hello, Pa. You all know my son, Nicholas. Hi, Nick. They own ships, oil, 
and swank New York restaurants. We don't allow ladies in trousers in the dining area. You what? Eyes, no problem. Follow me along the sidewalk. Is he going to think I've tipped him enough? Imagine that. We will have to ask you to leave. My name is Nicholas Keegan. My father owns this place. I'm awfully sorry, sir. They even own presidents. You think you got those votes and your good looks? I bought them and I paid for them. And when I needed cash, I got it. Now, uh, you remember your debts. Their computers hold information about millions of people, which can make fortunes or destroy lives. From our satellite, we can watch everything. Nasty little wars in Africa, crew movements, ship movements, nuclear tests, the Sinai, the Panama Canal, every little thing to check an investment. Nothing competes today with owning a hospital. No customer credit, pay in advance or get out. Unique product, pay. Laundry alone throws off enough to pay the order it is in the lab. Hey, Nick. Like a little? Well, I got a contract for you. One of the biggest contracts ever handed out. Anyways. Someone is trying to teach me a lesson in futility. Why am I the only one who isn't killed? They will run you dizzy. They will pile falsehood on top of falsehood until you can't tell a lie from the truth and you won't even want to. That's how the powerful keep their power. Don't you read the papers? What the hell? He was caught trying to enter, Mr. Keegan. That's my son. They're calling the police. You beg him to die? I'm standing between you and darkest night, son. From Richard Condon's rousing bestseller, hailed by the New York Times for its shocking surprises and grand entertainment. Winter Kills, the epic spectacle of an American dynasty. Take my hand! Stupid! You want to go with me? That's right, we'll be back next week with a discussion of Winter Kills. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Larry. Larry, last time I heard, you were going across the country to make a documentary. What's the status of that project? Well, there's still some more people to be interviewed, and it's in the it's in the um, editing stage at this point. Um, you know, it's always the, the the question of raising money to to keep um, uh, keep a film going, uh, and it takes it takes you know quite a bit of effort to get the money. Yesterday, I finished a film that I started in nineteen in in two thousand and one. Uh, uh, and it took me that long to, you know, to to make it. So there's not a deadline on on how long things take. Uh, you just have to keep at it. And for me, it's uh, the question is like, you know, is it worth, you know, working for 16 years on something? Does it hold up? Does it keep your keep your own interest involved? Do you believe in it that much? So. The documentary, I'm sure, will be interesting once it's um, in the can and edited. But there's a lot, a lot more to do. That I think they want to shoot some more stuff too. So I'll be looking at some more interviews with people. 
right around the time that we talked last, you also had uh, a movie that was playing uh, at a festival. What's uh, do you have anything else that's playing recently? That the film gestures. Um, I finished uh, last year, and this film, Prey, that's P-R-E-Y, is just, I've just entered it into um, uh, a a festival yesterday, uh, and I'll be, uh, you know, introducing it to more festivals to see. And it's a strange market that we're in now. It's, It's almost like you have to pay to show your films. Um, very much like the music business, it you know it used to be that you get a gig in a in a bar and you go and they pay you seventy five bucks. Now it's like how many people are you going to bring? You know we'll split the door. Uh, so it's all changed quite drastically. But as a filmmaker, you have to make films, and um, so the the film I'm very excited about. It. it was a very hard film to make. It was my swan song to. Uh, 35 millimeter, and I, I shot it um, on 35 black and white. Used a lot of the Edward R. Murrow uh, see it now uh, filters because I had I bought the cameras that were used on uh, that show from CBS, and um, I did it like in a very uh, authentic old uh, classic way of shooting the film with the filters and and all that, and cut it. Actually, cut the dialogue. Uh, on a movieola, an up, upright movieola, so it was very uh, traditional that way, and, and and had a work print, and not it wasn't digitized until I had the um, the work print um, solidified. I went back and matched the original, and then it was digitized. So um, uh, that that's where where I am with that now. We'll see what ha- what happens with that. I hope it. We'll do something. Uh, uh, you know, you never know. It's a crapshoot, and festivals have a have a tendency to be. They can be a little prejudiced in in certain ways, and uh, some of them are. You know, I did a uh, I did a segment for This American Life back in um, uh, nineteen. Uh, well, actually, it was two thousand about a, a festival. It was completely a scam, and they not only took the crew and the actors and everybody um they they, they it ruined some um businesses in this small town it was a, the whole thing was a put up job but um we'll see what what happens with the festival one or two festivals i, I would have loved to go to to china to see the the film playing in china but that wasn't in the cards but um maybe i'll get this new film get it someplace around where I can get to and, and see it because there's nothing like seeing your film with an audience because you get so close to it, you have no really objective eye to it anymore. And it's surprising to see an audience. Um, you can show the same film three nights with three different audiences and they'll react at different places. Um, never, never quite the same. You always hope for the, you know, a certain reaction, and sometimes it doesn't happen at all. Sometimes it's, it's where you didn't think something was going to be significant turns out to be the the thing that catches the audience's um, fancy, and they laugh at something you thought, well, what, what was funny about that? You know, <laughs> it's, it's a strange thing, but that's the exciting part. That's the exciting part, Mike, of making making films. You never know what the audience is going to going to do, you know, like it or not like it. 
the film I'm, uh, I just finished has, uh, we've talked about the dead animals. Well, it is all about dead animals, and I don't know how that's going to play with a, with a lot of people. But it's it has a purpose. Uh, it's really the purpose of man uh, colliding with nature and two uh, hapless guys that work for the state go around and pick up the animals. But the dynamics between them is quite interesting. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens with it. Well, just don't invite PETA to any of your screenings. You'll be okay. I obviously put the disclaimer at the end that uh, all of the gear um, were supplied by the uh, uh, DOE, you know, uh, and um, with their blessing, these were animals that were killed, uh, you know, on the road and stuff. So, so we don't know. You know, some people just like to um, put the kibosh on whatever. Was there a place for people to keep up with your work? You know, I have a, a blog which uh, I've neglected a bit, but uh, it's under LarryRevine.com. You know, that goes out to Facebook and Twitter and, and Tumblr and all the different things when I do it. So, you know, visiting my page on Facebook keeps keeps a, abreast of what's going on that way. Actually, it's my daughter right now that's the hot number. She's She's got a whole, a whole series, TV series on Hulu coming up. So, you know, the apple didn't fall too far from the tree. Thanks again, Larry, for being on the show. I want to thank everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.